But specifically last year, Bruce Fry won the auction sermon, and the topic he chose was the economic and psychological burdens of poverty. Now, from a UU perspective, many of you know that one theme I return to regularly is embodied in our UU6 principle, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice. Not merely for some, not merely for a few at the top, but peace, liberty, and justice truly for all. And from that perspective, the financial and mental stress of poverty is deeply unfair. It is deeply out of alignment with our UU values. But let's also be honest that not everyone holds UU values. So an additional framework that might be useful to create broader support for economic justice, uh, one among many we could consider is the American dream. Despite strong partisan divides in our country that can make it seem like we disagree about everything, it's interesting that still to this day and for many decades, surveys of the American public have shown that approximately 95% of us support that everyone in America should have equal opportunity to get ahead. Everyone in America, equal opportunity to get ahead. That strong consensus that each individual should have the chance to succeed or fail on the basis of their own effort and not be unduly held back, that's an entry point for economic justice. As many studies have shown, people living in poverty are not playing on an equal playing field compared to people living with economic privilege. They don't have the same access to the American dream. And since this auction sermon topic asked me to address both the economic and psychological burdens of poverty, let me start with psychology and then I'll move on to economics. From a psychological perspective, some of the most interesting and significant studies related to poverty center on what is called the adverse child experiences scale. Some of you may be really familiar with this, others of you may not have heard much about it. It includes 10 general categories, and as I bring this up, I'm aware that listing even these general types of experiences could bring up painful memories for some of you. I may be over-functioning in what I'm about to do to kind of prepare us, but on the other hand, as may be the case for many of you, I don't hear these general categories um, non-specifically. With each one of them, so many names and situations come to mind that are quite specific. So if that might be the case for you, I invite you to just offer yourself a little love and compassion in this moment as we prepare to enter into um, difficult subject matter. If you're open to it, try saying these three short phrases with me, either silently or aloud. You can even put a hand uh, kind of in heart center as we prepare to do this. Just simply say, either silently or aloud to yourself, may I be filled with loving kindness and breathe that in. May I be peaceful and at ease. May I be safe and protected. Offering compassion to ourselves is one among many tools for working with difficult experiences. And again, the reason I'm taking time to list these 10 items on the adverse child experiences scale is that they can help us become more 
conscious of what might be currently unconscious. They can help us be more aware of dynamics that are impacting our lives and the lives of others around us. And being more aware of these dynamics, it doesn't change the past, but it can make our memories of those experiences more workable and present, something we can uh, integrate and live with more skillfully. Along those lines, two of my favorite quotes from the psychologist Carl Jung that come to mind here. First is that one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light. One becomes enlightened by making the darkness conscious. If we can become more aware of unconscious dynamics in play, we can name what is happening and make our situation more workable. The second quote from Jung is that until you make the unconscious conscious, your unconscious will direct your life and you will call it fate. So it's an opportunity to make the unconscious conscious and help co-create our fate. So from that perspective, I'll share with you the 10 items on the adverse child experiences scale. I've actually got a slide that I will show to you. So the 10 items um, are under three categories. The first is abuse. Uh, did a household adult, uh, you know, humiliated, threatened you physically or um, hit, slapped or injured you physically or sexually abused you or neglect? If you felt no one in your family loved or supported you or household dysfunction, a household member uh, was depressed or suicidal, a mother or stepmother was physically abused in front of you, um, parents were separated or divorced, you lacked food or clothes, or your parents were too drunk or high to care for you, household members imprisoned or lived with an alcoholic or drug user. These adverse childhood experiences create what has been called toxic stress that negatively impact brain development. And there's a strong correlation between these adverse child experiences and the more of them you have and um, many negative behaviors and many negative health outcomes in adults. So everything we can do to prevent or support people having these adverse child experiences, it's so crucial for building the world we dream about, creating a more um, just society. So again, if you can kind of feel specific names or memories come to mind, again, offer yourself love and self-compassion in this moment. I also want to add, of course, that children at all socioeconomic levels experience various adverse childhood experiences. But it's also true that children who grow up in low-income, less educated families are at considerably greater risk. Even kids living at twice the poverty level are two to five times more likely to experience numerous factors on the adverse childhood experience scale compared to their more economically advantaged peers. Now, in the same way, however, that being wealthy doesn't guarantee you a pass on adverse childhood experiences, it's also true that there are many impoverished parents who are sensitive who are responsive, who are compassionate in ways that help mitigate the impact of adverse childhood experiences. Nevertheless, raising awareness of the correlation between poverty and adverse childhood experiences can help motivate people to support 
economic justice programs. It is not possible to be in alignment with the American dream that everyone in America should have equal opportunity to get ahead based on their own hard work when you realize that people living in poverty have to work twice as hard to even have a chance to get half as far. To be more specific about what I mean, allow me to shift from the psychological burdens of poverty to an economic angle. And when I think about the struggles of trying to make it in America, one book that comes immediately to mind to me is Barbara Ehrenreich's modern classic, Nickel and Dimed. To research this book, Ehrenreich went undercover to experience what it's like to try to get by as a minimum wage worker in America. Her book was published in 2001, and that was around the time that I was getting prepared in a year or two to really seriously enter the job market. And it had a profound impact on me at the time of reflecting on the unequal struggles that workers face. From her own perspective, Erin Reich has said that her experience researching that book moved her from concern about the exploitation of low-wage workers to something more like rage. She was infuriated by the daily humiliations that both she and her coworkers faced, being uh, constantly uh, suspected of using drugs or stealing, having little to no control or input over one's work schedule changing, be, being ironically shortchanged multiple times, you know, um, coming in early, going late, and having that not show up on her time card. So being shortchanged, robbed on pay by the very same employers who were always worried about being stolen from. Aaron Reich's book, however, is ultimately the perspective of someone with economic privilege seeking to put a spotlight on economic justice, and that's incredibly important. And although I still recommend Aaron Reich's Nickel and Dime to anyone who hasn't read it, I'd also recommend to you a newer book called Hand to Mouth, Living in Bootstrap America by Linda Tirado, who, unlike Aaron Reich, has lived for years as a low-wage worker. Her subtitle, Living in Bootstrap America, reminds me of a profound quote from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that it is a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself up by his bootstraps. And that's often what we in America do to those living in poverty. Toronto's book is equal parts really hilarious. She's a, she's a funny writer. She's provocative and poignant. And I'm only going to have time to share just a few pieces of it. But one of the most important points is you just see how hard she's working for so little reward. She's getting up at 6 a.m. every morning so that she can get to class. You know, she's trying to get a college degree while also working two jobs to support her family, just to get the kids to school and then to work at one or both of her jobs, get home a little after midnight, do some homework, maybe some housework, get to bed by 3 a.m. so that she can get an inadequate three hours of sleep before getting up at 6 a.m. and restarting that daily grind. Two nights a week, she can get to bed by midnight, but that's always dangerous, she shares, because it can throw off her sleep pattern for the rest of the week. And she says the most demoralizing part is to work that hard and still be poor. Although a significant uh, percentage of people earning minimum wage are teenagers, um, likely still living at home, it's also true that 800,000 adults over the age of 25 work at minimum wage or below. To put that number in context, that's about 25,000 more people than live in all of San Francisco. And in such circumstances, Toronto writes compellingly about how easy it is to resort to unhealthy coping mechanisms just to get by. 
So what I really appreciate most about her book is how deeply human it is. It's searingly honest and vulnerable and transparent about the realities of just getting by, including, again, hilarious and poignant stories on topics that range from junk food to sex and more. Her favorite example, though, is when economically well-off people criticize her for smoking. She writes that, I smoke because it is a fast, quick hit of dopamine. She says, I know it's bad for me. I'm addicted, not addled. Cigarettes keep me awake, and they keep me going. And overall, I agree with Barbara Ehrenreich that poverty is not a culture or a character defect. It is simply a shortage of money. And that shortage arises from grievously inadequate pay, aggravated by constant humiliation and stress, as well as outright predation by employers, by credit card companies, and even sometimes by law enforcement agencies. And if there's one takeaway from Toronto's book that all of us, regardless of level of income, can immediately put into action, it is to be even more intentional than you perhaps already are if you run into a low-wage worker who is having a bad day. That basically means just being kind which of course is also a good strategy in almost any situation. More generally and more long-term of changing the system, those of you who have been around here for a while and Jen talked about this some in the meditation, know that I personally think the solution to poverty is to give people money until they aren't poor anymore. To me, the universalist half of our Unitarian Universalist heritage means working to provide a stable floor for all. I don't believe we should all be equal. Many people may want to work harder and earn more, but I do believe that every human being deserves a basic minimum needed for a dignified life. I've said a lot about that in um, previous sermons. Uh, let me share my screen with you briefly one more time. If you're looking for an accessible entry point to think a little bit about this, I recommend the book by economist Annie Lowry titled Give People Money, How a Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty, Revolutionize Work, and Remake the World. It's important, a lot to say about that. Um, Jen referenced Dr. King's work on a universal basic income. Also important, Richard Nixon almost made universal basic income a reality. Also highly recommend the book Eviction for Matthew Desmond. If I had more time, I would go talk more about eviction. It's an even more urgent topic amidst the pandemic. Uh, very concretely, if you know of someone personally in crisis in our area, one step is to recommend that they call 211. So instead of 911, 211. Uh, it can help with a wide variety of problems and help connect people to what are the resources that can help you if you're on the edge of eviction or you're having all manner of issues. So 211 is an important resource in this and other areas. Our country has a tremendous wealth gap. We do not have to allow our current system of deep economic injustice to continue. We can level the playing field. It's simply a matter of political will. And it's important to be honest, there's a high cost to inaction. Underinvesting in child poverty has serious long-term consequences related to um, economic output, crime rates, healthcare costs. Conversely, as the Nobel laureate economist James Heckman has estimated that even expensive investments in early childhood education would yield real rates of return of approximately six to 10% that 
outstrip long-term stock market returns. Ignoring the plight of poor kids imposes a substantial economic burden on all of us. And when I think about how this situation might change, I'm reminded of a really amazing essay by the philosopher Richard Rorty that he published in 1996 titled Looking Backward from the Year 2096. In this essay, he imagines how future generations might look back on us in parallel to how we look back on our ancestors 100 years ago from today. To be specific, from our contemporary perspective, it's easy to look back on citizens of this country who lived before the Civil War and condemn their tolerance of the enslavement of human beings based on nothing more than the color of someone's skin. Today we ask, how is it possible that our ancestors stomached slavery? But what if we turn that around and look in the mirror and consider how others in the future may look back on us. One day our descendants might look back on us in 2020 and ask, how could our great grandparents, that's us, how could they have legally permitted a CEO to get more than 100 times her lowest paid employee? Amidst such great wealth, how could our ancestors have allowed children to grow up in preventable poverty? Now, we don't live in 2096, and there's no guarantee that um, poverty will be eliminated in the eight decades between now and then. It all turns on what happens in the coming months and years. For now, we live here in 2020 when poverty remains a moral abomination that is the responsibility of us all. May we each act individually and collectively within our spheres of influence to help co-create a world in which we give all human beings a stable floor, a level playing field from which to grow and act and flourish. In that spirit, let's sing together, building a new way.